It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano uh, i'll tell you one of the most interesting people out there is uh, dr edward bell bruno uh, this is a fellow that is very accomplished in way too many different fields if you ever want to feel bad about yourself just pull up a copy of edward bell bruno's resume he's got more degrees than a thermometer. He's an artist. He's a mathematician. He's a scientist. And he's not just any scientist. He's a scientist with a diversity of interests and expertise, celestial mechanics, dynamical systems, dynamical uh, astronomy, aerospace engineering. Worked for many years in NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The guy is a pretty accomplished guy. Uh, Dr. Bell Bruno, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks. I, I see why this is called the other side of midnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, believe me, uh, you get uh, you get the hang of the time eventually. All right. Um, so, for folks that are unfamiliar with your your career, tell us a little bit about the work that you did uh, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, how long were you there, and uh, what what projects were you responsible for being a part of? Yeah, I I, uh, I went there like um, geez, I was. Um, about around 1985, a long, long time ago, and um, I just out of graduate school. I was a professor for a while at the Boston University. Didn't like it, um, and then I switched to work for NASA. Uh, design, and my background is is in the field of celestial mechanics, the way things move in outer space, and um, uh, and I was doing research in it after I got my PhD uh, from NYU. And I, I really didn't like the research world, so I was hired to go out there to JPL, and and basically. Um, you know, for those listening, um, JPL, you know, they, they, that's the place that lands those spaceships on Mars, you see, and, and sends the, does deep space missions. So I was hired to design trajectories for the, uh, for the Galileo mission to Jupiter and the Cassini mission to Saturn, the Magellan mission to Venus, and all of those. And uh, um, more or less standard work, I mean, you know, you're sitting there in front of a desk just designing trajectories for these major multi-billion dollar missions. Uh, but I noticed when I was there that uh, uh, what got me going was I kept my research going that I had back in, uh, in, my, in my research life. I got, I got sick of being an engineer because I was trained as a math guy, not, not in the field of engineering hmm. where I found myself. And uh, so I, to keep myself busy um, – I was designing a new ways to get to the moon, believe it or not. And uh, the, the, the usual way to get there is to – it's basically a ballistic shot like out of a cannon. You just aim towards the moon. You go there almost a straight line. And it takes about three days. And when you get there, you're going like really too fast. So you got to slow down and you have to spend a lot of money for fuel 
because it's expensive. It's like a million dollars a pound, believe it or not. So uh, you could the, the Apollo spacecraft said, spent something like a quarter of a billion dollars just to slow down. So uh, I, I get interested in the problem. Is, is it possible to get to the moon and use absolutely no fuel at all? To, to get captured well, around the uh, that, moon. I want to get back to the moon situation and the new routes to the moon in just a second because I found that uh, pretty fascinating. But um, yeah. I, I wanted to get – the reason I was eager to have you on the program this morning was because of your work into – and your interest in dark matter. Recently, there's been a lot of news uh, related to dark matter And I have to be honest, I'm not even sure I understand what dark matter is. Can you explain, even in manners, uh, in a manner that someone like me can understand, what is dark matter? Okay, well, no one knows what it is actually, and I I just published a pretty a pretty interesting paper on this with uh, James Green, who's the chief scientist of NASA. And any then, dark matter is an invisible substance; you can't see it. Um, However, it's got gravity on it, so. just to give you an idea of this, in our galaxy where we live, there's like 200 billion stars. Our sun is just one of them. In our galaxy, if you counted up all the stars, of, of, of which is a gigantic number, you took, and you put it on a scale and weighed it, you'd only get 5% of the mass that's actually there. 95% of the mass of our galaxy, we can't see it. We don't even know where it is. So it's, it's an unknown substance. Um, and uh, the paper I just published on it, actually, is the first paper ever to, 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 to come up with a way to directly measure it without actually knowing what it is with a spaceship, seeing how, the, how a spaceship can deflect its orbit and thereby, thereby figure out that dark matter is actually there. But it's totally invisible. And um, uh, there's all kinds of theories about what it is. And, um, you know, it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, the, the, the James Webb Telescope hopefully will get some information about what it might be, but right now it's a complete, it's a complete mystery. But um, basically, it's 90, 98% of our galaxy. So w- without exaggerating, when, when, you're, when you're talking to someone across the room, 98% of the room is missing, uh, roughly. Wow, that's something. Now, I know that um, th- <laughs> this has been around, this idea, for a, a while now. And that uh, a lot of physicists have proposed that this invisible substance called dark matter was providing extra gravitational pull, causing the stars to uh, speed up. And that's a theory that a lot of people subscribe to. But then uh, when I was trying to do a little research, I found that there's a whole bunch of scientists, a whole bunch of physicists that don't even believe that dark matter exists. How can there be such wide debate among physicists about whether dark matter even exists. Well, well, you know, it's interesting you ask that. That's really interesting because um, if you look at the data, um, it's pretty clear that, that there's a substance there, and they can see it indirectly the way the light deflects around galaxies, it's in distant galaxies. Now, there was a theory for a while which, which sort of disputed this, and I think that's what you're alluding to. It's called the modified theory of gravity, the Mond theory, and it basically said that there is nothing there. That actually, what's going on is that the gravitational force that we all grew up with, Newton's force, which is the inverse square force, um, is is actually not accurate when you're getting to, to gigantic things like the galaxy are much bigger than that. And therefore, um, if you try to use that, the, the old gravity that we we know in the textbooks, if you try to use that to measure the way things are moving in our galaxy, you know, it's not going to work, and you're going to see anomalies. So, so the, and and what, what they did observe is that um, if is that things moving towards the middle of our galaxy move with a certain velocity, and 
and and if and if you believe in 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 uh, Newton's field, uh, that would it would say that the further out you go, they'd have to go slower and slower. And it turns out they don't. They actually speed up. Hmm. So uh, there, there's something out there making that happen. And and they they say, well, it's it's due to the fact that you have to modify the field of gravity, and there's really nothing there. However, that's been that's been shown to be not true. Um, it, it's very clear that. Uh, there's been new new results in astrophysics to show that the mind theory is simply not correct. That, that dark matter is definitely there. Now, the popular science literature seems to be loaded with these articles trying to disprove it. But from what I can see and what was in my last paper, it's simply not true. We're talking with uh, Dr. Edward Belbruno, artist, mathematician, scientist. What are your thoughts on this uh, Hadron Collider? And uh, a lot of people I know were concerned that this could open up a, a portal to another dimension or something along those lines. Is is this collider something that will further the study of dark matter at all? Yeah, yeah, it could because there's, uh, you know, no one knows, like I said, no one knows what the, you know, excuse my language, but no one knows what the hell it is. And, and, and there's all kinds of strange theories about it. But one of them is that it could be a subatomic particle causing it, um, uh, a, you know, some particle that's, that you can't even see it, this little tiny particle floating around like a you know, new, proton, neutron, but something in that, in that area. And it would have a certain mass, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you need a sufficiently high energy to, to really see if these particles are there. So it's possible that the, that the Large Hadron Collider would be able to make those make big enough collisions so they see remnants of the collision and evidence of this particle. And it's totally possible that could happen. Hmm. All right. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your work in developing a new route or maybe new routes to the moon. How many different ways can you go to the moon? I, I would have um, I would have assumed <laughs> that the, the, the quickest way from here to the moon is a straight line. Is that not the case? Yeah, it's pretty much a straight line. It's, 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 it's actually an ellipse, which is highly elongated. But for all practical purposes, if you were looking down on the Earth-Moon system and you went off to the moon on, the, on that route, it would be almost a straight line. And it was developed, actually, in the 1920s by this German engineer called Hohmann. His name was Walter Hohmann. Um, and uh, it was used in, in all early uh, missions to the moon, et cetera. And, and the disadvantage of that is it gets you there quick. It's great for astronauts. Um, in fact, they used something like that for the Apollo. Um, however, uh, when you get there, you, you're going really fast, and you have to slow down to go in orbit around the moon. Otherwise, you just fly by, and that, that's the end of you. So um, uh, the slowing down part is very expensive. Um, it's dangerous because you have to slow down. If you don't slow down correctly, you just fly by the moon. But it's a million dollars a pound for fuel. So um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, it's a quarter of a billion dollars for the Apollo spacecraft to slow down. So I was interested in the problem, you know, when I arrived at JPL years ago. Is it possible to, to get something to go to the moon where you don't have to worry about using fuel to go into orbit? So basically it's a trade-off. You can definitely, I found out after some work, um, you can definitely do it. Um, but it takes a lot longer to get there. Instead of taking three days, it takes three months. And I was very, very lucky to be able to justify the theory I cooked up uh, to do this um, when I was almost fired because of my job because I thought my work was not worth it. And and I luckily, this, as the things would line up, I was totally vindicated. Uh, before I actually left JPL, I had, I had the opportunity uh, to actually uh, rescue an errant Japanese lunar mission called HITEN, H-I-T-E-N. And uh, Japan launched this thing to the moon in 1991 in January, and uh, it was two spacecraft going around the Earth. Um, 
and and the high ten spacecraft was the larger one about the size of a desk, and it was never designed to go to the moon. And a small one attached to it was, and it went off to the moon. It just never made it. It was a failed mission. So they were desperate to save the other one. And as as I was about to leave JPL, I was, this engineer, James Miller, contacted me and said, Japan really wants to save their mission. Can your crazy theory work? And and it was one of those moments in my life where I suddenly saw how to do it. Mm. I, all those years, I just suddenly, oh, that that's how you do that. So we went to the computer, did it, it worked, and about a year later, they actually rescued this Japanese mission and got it to the moon. It took uh, five months to get there, wow. but, it, but it took absolutely no fuel whatsoever to go into orbit. So um, it's been now used several times, and the current mission, which has been in the news, the capstone mission, is using the same trajectory. And what's the capstone mission? Um, it's, it's, a, it's sending a CubeSat to the moon, a small little um, uh, spaceship. Um, probably not much bigger than a trash can. And uh, it's, it's going to go, when it gets to the moon, its goal is going to be to go into a new kind of orbit they've never used before uh, that, that goes around the, the lunar poles. Um, and it's called a rectilinear halo orbit. And uh, they're going to test out getting into that orbit is really what it's hmm. about. I mean, that's got to make you feel good, developing a route to the moon that's been used to uh, to rescue various craft over the years. That's that's pretty impressive. I, I know that you hold um, some patents on various space routes, I guess including that one. I didn't even know that you can patent a space route. Can I can I patent a shortcut to the to Yankee Stadium or something? <laughs> Actually, you could. Um, so the way it works is in the patent industry, uh, you don't actually patent the route to the moon. What you have to patent is the algorithm to actually find it. So it, it, it boils down to a computer program, and, and you have to you, know, you have to put the program in there. The, it's, it's like an algorithm, and um, and then you you put in the route that you're doing. You explain why it's important. And and they have to check it out, make sure no one's done that before. But it, it's called an algorithm patent. And and when people patent like these, um, you know, remember that sh- remember that sheep years ago, Dolly, I think, where they, uh, they had some. Oh kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. The the clone sheep. The clone sheep. Supposedly. And that process. That's also an algorithm patent, and and they got a patent for doing that by patenting the process. Oh, I see. Okay, that's interesting. Hey, um, do you have a take on why? Um, the United States, why NASA, why America has not been back to the moon since the 1970s. It seemed like there was so much enthusiasm for lunar travel uh, with the Apollo program. And then interest just sort of waned. And then the last few presidents have all talked about going back and we'll see what happens with Artemis. But do you have a take on why it's been a half century since we've been to the moon? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I uh, one, one of my good friends, Neil Tyson, talks about this, too. Um, but no, I, I have a really good take on this. Uh, so uh, basically, it was just all politics to begin with. I mean, there was a desire to go, but but at the time we went in the seventies or early seventies, it was purely to 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 beat the Soviet Union there. And uh, once that was done, um, they they just got rid of it because it was too expensive. E- each one of those Saturn V rockets they used to launch to the moon, I don't know the exact price today. I I can't even begin to estimate. I'm going to guess each one today would probably would have been, you know, well over a billion dollars. So, um, you know, you have to justify keeping those going. And they just didn't want to get into that. Um, Also, it was the end of the Cold War. You know, the Cold War was still going on, but they had beat Russia. And then the the Iranian thing happened with the oil, if you remember, the oil embargo. And uh, we came out of the Vietnam War. And I think they were so expensive, they Mm -hmm. just decided not to do it. 
and um, instead they 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 did use the Saturn V a little bit to to make an orbiting space station, but um, after that they went down the road of the space shuttle, which really truly was supposed to be a cheap way to get into orbit, and we all know that didn't work as planned. Um, so uh, now it's many years later that going back to the Saturn V technology for the SLS that the United States has built, um, which is going to be tested soon, is going to do a figure eight around the moon and show it works. But however, the one that's really hopeful is this SpaceX thing called Starship, which is actually bigger, and um, it would have more capability if, if it does work. And it's still a big question mark. So it so, was—it's primarily—it's primarily a financial reason, and the and not needing the international bragging rights that were so valuable during the Cold War. Yeah, totally bragging rights. All it was, and plus plus the price. I mean, it was sure. just unbelievably because you know it's like. That's why we never put a base on the moon, because if you want to put a base on the moon, you have to supply it, right? I mean, for example, our space station that we have up there right now, people don't know what that costs. That was $100 billion mm. to build the space station. And that's only two, 100 miles up with six people in it. Can you imagine putting a base on the moon with what that's going to cost? No, I can't. <laughs> so I, I don't yeah. care to. So I know you mentioned some optimism about the SpaceX situation. What about the Artemis project that uh, that NASA is uh, is spearheading? Are you optimistic that that could result in a successful mission back to the moon as well? Yeah, I think the Artemis will. I mean, the Artemis, um, you know, it's fully built. Uh, the SL, it's called the SLS Space Launch System. It's fully built. Uh, they're going to put a dummy in there and have it go around the moon. I mentioned before, so it it probably hopefully keep your fingers crossed it'll work. If that test works in a few months, then they probably would be able to soft land something on the moon again. But I'm not going to hold my breath because they still have to develop the landing craft for that. Mm, the landing, remember, they had that. For, they don't even have that, as far as I know. So um, even if the even if the SLS works uh, as a first step to show we have a launch vehicle to at least get us to the moon for people. You still have to get down there and back to the surface, back to the spaceship again, and uh, that could be another several years before that, that that's ironed sure. out. So um, I say yes, it's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Probably, I you know I probably give it another five years, maybe even longer if, if they stick with it. But you know NASA's been known and to just drop a project. Um, they've done big space projects, which were the rocket was all developed. They just stopped it. So that's totally possible. You, you know, when we think of scientists, mathematicians, we think of people that use one side of their brain. And then when we think of uh, artists, writers, poets, we think of people that tend to use another side of uh, their brain. You've been pretty accomplished in both fields. Tell me about your work as an artist, uh, what you've done in terms of, of your painting and your artistry, and how your fondness for science and mathematics has informed your artistry. Oh boy, yeah, that's a, um, actually it's it's so funny. It's actually the other way around. So um, the route to the moon, I, I told you, I developed. I did that via painting, believe it or not. Um, I had to go to the computers You're and actually kidding. figure it out. But it was wow. inspired by a painting. It was the painting actually gave rise to the science. But uh, I I did my first serious painting when I was like uh, five years old. It was a spaceship, and it came out so good that when I had an art show in New York City, a group show about five years ago, they featured that to advertise the whole group show. So I had this natural talent as a young kid to to want to do painting, and um, it just came out of nowhere. And and I knew what to buy, I knew what to use. I didn't even need any training in it. And I had my first art show when I was like you know 18 years old. And 
Uh, my earlier paintings definitely had a sort of a spacey kind of theme, but I but surrealistic. I can't really describe it. But um, um, I, I did it, uh, you know, throughout my early college years, and I took time off when I went to graduate school. But when I finished graduate school, I just came back with a vengeance out of nowhere, and I did these incredible starscapes um, that just came out of nowhere. I mean, I, I just beautiful, beautiful starscapes. And before I knew it, my art career was was relaunched um, in my mid twenties, hmm. and I had a bunch of shows in Boston, L.A. And um, NASA headquarters of Washington has a piece of mine hanging in the executive director's office. Um, and uh, uh, they were more realistic-looking pieces, a little bit surrealistic. But people looked at them, and they just said, these are sort of desolate, bleak, but beautiful landscapes at all at the same time. But the new work I'm doing now is, is uh, a very colorful, a bright um, – I can't describe them. They're sort of uh, exp- abstract expressionist. But um, – very bright colors and and uh, people just love them actually. But um, in large, I mean, I just finished one seven by eight feet. Mm. But um, but last year I did a whole sequence of black and white ones, and they, they were my my reaction to the whole COVID nightmare. And um, I did a whole sequence of black and white paintings of just these dystopian, desolate backgrounds, landscapes, and um, and and they just are stunning. And people are just like deer in headlights looking at them, you know, because they just they look at them saying, I've never seen this before, yeah. but I recognize it, you know? So, um, no, but, I, but I want, yeah. I'm no, sorry. that's terrific. And by the way, people could see some of your artwork on your website at uh, edbelbruno.com. That's uh, with one L, edbelbruno.com. There's also a really interesting documentary about your whole uh, artistry situation called Painting the Way to the Moon, which has gotten great reviews, even won some awards. Mention it uh, does feature... Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of your artwork in there. People are just tuning in. We are talking with Edward Bell Bruno. In addition to his work with uh, the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, he has been uh, or is a clinical professor of mathematics at Yeshiva University and a visiting research collaborator at Princeton University. Now, let me ask you about this, uh, Ed, because this is something that a lot of people that are as highly highly accomplished in academia as you are tend to shy away from talking about. You had a very interesting encounter with a UFO back in 1991. What happened? Well, uh, yeah, so um, um, most people don't want to talk about things like that, but in the current environment uh, with the UAPs that have now been seen by the Navy, as everyone knows, and the Air Force has now said they're there. They see, you know, I saw mine, you know, but this was pretty dramatic. I mean, uh, I was uh, leaving L.A. actually and uh, driving from L.A. After after that experience I had rescuing that Japanese lunar spacecraft, I needed a little bit of a break. Uh, so um, I, I left L.A. in my car, put some of my paintings in it, and drove to, to St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, as I was driving cross-country with a, with a companion, uh, uh, we, we drove up through Las Vegas and then up into Wyoming – and then um, pretty much around 10 o'clock at night uh, was was a Casper, Wyoming, and I wanted to go directly north to a bunch of hotels just to, to get a good night's sleep. And my partner wanted to take this bleak little road. It was a nothing road um, up by Casper. And just said, insisted we take this road. And I said, if you want to do that, I will. But I'm not, you know, so I took it. And uh, it was just this small road that went about 75 miles um, to the other side of the state. 
and I did that, and um, it was a very I had to go really slow. And I noticed I was driving from like ten o'clock to around midnight, I guess, uh, or eleven thirty, and there wasn't a single car past me in either direction, which I thought was kind of strange. Um, but it was very balmy night, um, and and so on and so. So we got to Thunder Basin, and uh, which is this basically depression in the ground. It's like uh, sagebrush all over the place, and just uh, there was a, it was a moonless night, and um, I, I we we sort of descended into this 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 depression, and um, as we did, I saw an extremely bright uh, red light um, off in the distance at the bottom of the bowl that we were going into, and. And you know, I see something like a very bright light, and and uh, um, I, I I said to my friend, uh, "What the heck is that?" I mean, you know, it's about eleven at eleven o'clock at night, and I see this, and uh, um, I I um, uh, slowed down a little bit, and I looked off, and I, there it was. You know, I said, "So I'm trying to find excuses for this." So I said, "Well, you know, it's probably a, a construction site now." In retrospect, the construction site in Thunder Basin National Grasslands at 11 o'clock at night just was ridiculous, but I had to find some reason for that. So I got to the bottom, and the road leveled off, and it's right in front of me, this gigantic light. And I noticed it was not just the light at this point. It was huge. It was a, it was like the side of a building, and it was in the middle of the road. It blocked, my, it blocked the road. I could not go around it. In fact, I noticed it was a, it was a black rectangle. It was a perfect rectangle, boundary of a rectangle, suspended off of the ground, sitting on the back of something much bigger, which was a, which was the back of some object, and it was sitting there. So I just stopped the car, and I'm, I said to my friend, you know, I was spellbound. I said, I obviously never saw anything like this, saw anything like this in my life, and she didn't either. And um, I, I said, I can't go. I'm not going around this. And then it, it it lifted off of the ground. The thing just floated up. It wow. didn't make any noise, and uh, it went up maybe 50 feet in the air and and just hovered there over the ground, this big red rectangle on the back of this gigantic thing. It was like 40 feet by 40 feet, and the rectangle was in the middle of it. So my friend says, why don't you go out and go under it, right? And I said, why don't you go under it? I said, I'm not going near that thing. It's it's I don't even I don't know what this is, right? I was I was completely blown away by this because it was so quiet. And then it turned sideways, and what we were looking at was the back of it. It was the back of an object that was probably 100 feet long, and that was the very back of it. And when it, when it turned around, it was about 120 feet long, and it sort of glowed blue in the middle and just sat there over the road. And, and it did a little bit of a motion like it was almost like announcing itself, and then it slowly went north. And when it got far out of sight where I could see it go up towards the mountains, I got out. And I'm just standing there in the middle of the road looking at this. My Jeep is sitting there with the lights off. And I said, this is like something out of a movie. I mean, no one would ever believe this. So um, that was my part of the experience. I was part of it. And uh, what I did notice was um, uh, uh, when I finally went to St. Paul, Minnesota and, and recuperated from that, um, after that spacecraft got to the moon that I had designed for uh, – for, for, for the Japanese, Carl Sagan, who ran the Planetary Society mm -hmm. at the time in Pasadena, he asked he wanted me to write a story for his magazine on, on this rescue. And I did. And this is a few months later now. So I'm writing the article. And I said, yeah, I said, October 2nd, 1991, the Japanese spacecraft arrived at the moon on this trajectory I found. And then I just stopped and said, wait a minute. that was, the, the time that that happened 
in in the time it actually got there was a time I saw that thing on the road. Whoa, whoa. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I'm way late here, uh, but you got to come back next week uh, because uh, that raises a whole lot of questions. Uh, maybe we can continue this conversation next week. I'd love to do that. That'd be great. That'd be great. I want to encourage everybody to check out your your website. Uh, We've been talking with uh, Edward Bell Bruno. You can check out his his biography and some of his artwork at edbellbruno.com. Bell Bruno with one L. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.